There, let's bring it down there, Charlie. There we are. Yes, sir. Big Daddy is on the scene. Are you ready in there? All right, everything's set. Listeners are all prepared and ready. They're all present. Big Daddy is here. He's got this two-bit single-button carbon microphone on. We've got uh, all 75 watts of our transmitter booming down into the ground leak that we use to dribble it off into Staten Island somewhere. And uh, we're ready and prepared for a big night. I charge. It's time once again for radio to begin here. All these guys have been playing around, fooling around all day long. It's time for the big timers to take over. Let's go. I'm just... Here's a good line. I trimmed a sucker for a roll, <laughs> and I felt almost out of sight. I took a stroll along the line, set up for all the boys, and just to pass the time away, I dropped in on Kid McCoy. And while I sat there drinking, getting on a mighty stool, a dead swell dame came in the place and sat beside me, too. <laughs> I asked her if she'd have a drink. She sweetly said she would. And as I gazed into her eyes, I thought I understood. Perhaps you'll think me fickle, pals, but it isn't any dream, for when it comes to peachy looks, that Tommy was the queen. We chewed the rag for quite a while, and I shot the con for fair. And when it comes to spreading salve, you may gamble. I was there, Dad. I told her I would place her in a finely furnished flat. And when the joint closed up that night, I had my girly. Hee, <laughs> Pat. <laughs> oh. Yeah, Rasmus. Bring it up big and solid. Oh. She's got eyes of blue. I never cared for eyes of blue, but she's got eyes of blue, and that's my weakness now. Oh, Bodio! She's got dimpled cheeks. I never cared for dimpled cheeks, but she's got dimpled cheeks, and that's my weakness now. Oh, my, oh, my, oh, my, oh, my, oh, my, oh, I should be good, I would be good, but she loves to bill and coo. I never liked to bill and coo, but she, she loves to bill and coo. So and that's my weakness now. We're gonna think I never cared for yellow tea, but she's got yellow tea. And that's my weakness now. Uh, gee, I'm really singing up a fantastic storm. How would you like to hear tonight a square shooter's plea? And if there's anybody I believe seriously is a square shooter, you're listening to him right now. Would you please turn the gain up there? There is too much rough-and-tumble rottenness in the world today. And once in a while, it's good to hear from a real straight shooter, a square shooter. In fact, years ago, Tom Mix sent me a... Would you please uh, dig in there? Uh, hey, baby, watch me from... I don't know what the hell you're writing so fantastically fast. In there. But would you please look at those records? Stop writing for a minute. I want you to show me the records I've got in there. Just stop doing it for a minute and let me let me talk here. All right, don't get mad about it, baby. We're doing a show. We're not writing a book. All right, there you go. All right. Well, I can't see you holding them upside down, cocker. There. Now give me the one of the piano there, please. There, that's piano. You got it in your hand. There we go. That's the one. Now, if you will please dig out in there a. Uh, 
nice piece of square shooter. Don't look so bugged, honey. I'm doing the show. You're just helping me. Give me a nice piece of square shooter type music and get on the stick. You pick it out. Let's see what you pick out. Mm -hmm. I think George is getting to the point where you disturb the help and they're bugged. All right. La -da 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 -da. You know, this whole place here thinks we're in the office business. In fact, there's one whole department that thinks we're in the log business. Hey, now, come on, stop being mad. You're all right. Nobody knows who I'm talking to. They may think I'm talking to Jimmy McAleer. Yes, uh, here is a uh, a square shooter's plea. Now, if you people... All right, bring it on there, Bridget. Just, just bring it in there quietly. Yes, that's certainly square. Well, sort of, I guess. That's as good as we can do right here. All right, take it down now and out. Very good. Now, we'll set the scene there for square shooters. Hey, you're really looking bugged tonight, honey. What's the matter? Why don't you step out in the hall and let me continue the show and you can be mad outside. All right, here we go. Let me walk among toilers while I am on earth. This is a square shooter's plea, and I'd love to send this to a lot of friends of mine. Let me walk among toilers while I'm on earth and be by my honest toil judged of my worth while judging all men by the spirit within and not the fine raiment that covers the skin. Let me feel with the stricken a bit of their grief that I may understand an appeal for relief and fail not in my duty to neighbor in need. This, by the way, was taken from a calendar, in case you're interested, written by a man named Anonymous, and it was taken from a calendar which was one of the biggest, best-selling calendars in all of history. Uh, you know, we never, we never really talk much about calendar art and what effect it's had on people's attitudes. Uh, you know, the term calendar art is, is today is, is kind of a loosely held term. And uh, it doesn't... What are you writing in there? I'm just curious. No, I'm really curious. All right, she's going to leave so long. It's a little disturbing to have somebody sit in the studio right away and then work. And oh, no, boy. All right, now let's get back to the show. But I am, I am, I am really, uh, I come from a long line of, of people who live by calendar art. And I have to frankly admit that in the, in the home when I was a kid, uh, all I can remember, we never bought, I don't know whether you come from a family like I did, but I'm going to tell you the kind I came from. We never once, to my knowledge, ever bought a picture. I don't recall our family buying a picture. I don't recall uh, anybody in our family ever really going to an art museum. I can remember going to museums, but they always had bones with dinosaurs and stuff in them. You know, once in a while we went to a museum where they had a lot of old Fords, that kind of stuff. But I never, I can't recall going to an art museum as a kid. Uh, in fact, I can't recall actually going, uh, really going seriously to a museum with anybody in the family unless uh, it was one of those things where the whole uh, Sunday school went and my mother had to go along, something like that. But I don't recall being taken by my mother to the Sunday school or, or something, you know, official type thing. I went with groups and that kind of thing. But the curious, the curious thing that I do recall is that running through the comic strips of my... Now, I don't know whether this has ever been reported much, John, but running through the comic strips was a strong anti-art attitude that ran through almost all the comic strips uh, that, that people really lived by. For example, uh, I used to remember great arguments that my mother and father would have over relative villains that Dick Tracy had. 
uh, whether or not uh, uh, B.O. Plenty was a better villain than the mole. Uh, this this was the art that people really lived by. And you know, I, I think I think that the whole premise of camp, that the whole bit of the camp and the pop and, and the uh, pop art, I think that much of this premise is built on a false foundation. I mean, a false foundation in the sense of the people who are who are uh, literate and have been educated, really, in a way, uh, are suddenly embracing things which they never embraced as kids. In other words, a kid who grew up in a home where they read the uh, what, the Atlantic Monthly, they read Harper's, uh, they were very official people, the old man went to Princeton, they didn't do much comic strip viewing. I'm sure if they did, it was not done. There are, do they have comic strips, Bob, in the Wall Street Journal? Well, they have a lot of comics in the Wall Street Journal, but I don't think they know that they are. However, uh, these, these seem to be the people that are making the big shtick today over the, over the comic strips. They're not, really the, they're not really the people who grew up with the comic strips and lived with the comic strips, and that was, it was a comic strip world, as a matter of fact. Uh, and and I, the other day I walked past the gallery, and I see all these people in the gallery, and I go in, I, I, I have a friend who runs the gallery, and I see these people walking around, and... Uh, and it suddenly hit to, it really hit me hard that, that I had never seen anybody in my youth ever buy a picture. That was something very... Oh, once in a while, when, when somebody would get a new dining room suit, they called it, uh, they'd get a new dining room suit at Friday's Furniture Company, they would throw in what they called uh, colorful scenes, would be thrown in if you bought the thing before July 1st or something, or if you paid cash. They would, <laughs> yeah, that's the truth. They would give away pictures. Now, that what these pictures were generally consisted of of big uh, modernistic type frames. They called them modernistic, uh, modernistic type frames with pictures of cows in them. Uh, occasionally, there would be a picture of a Venetian castle and a moat. Uh, what what real importance or relevance this had to life with Northern Indiana, I don't know. But they, they would buy pictures of horses, too. There was, there was also another picture I remember that I saw in several places when I was a kid of an Indian sitting on a horse. And underneath it, it said something like, uh, the end of the trail. This is a very important picture. Uh, but the real pictures that people really dug and lived by came on calendars. Now, that's the whole point of what I'm talking about. There was no lack of beauty or art in our world. Uh, it was just that it was not formal art. And so every year, Passwinski's Esso station would send us a calendar. And every year, uh, Mattingly's grocery store would send us a calendar. And every year, there'd be a lot of argument as to whether this year's calendar was better than the last year's calendar. And the pictures on the calendar was the kind of art that, that people really thought was great. For example, a Boy Scout, Norman Rockwell scene showing a Boy Scout helping Granny across the street. And, uh, you know, there was always a little chuckle thrown in. For example, uh, you could see that Granny was winking at the artist, letting, Gra letting the artist and us, of course, know that it was really Granny helping the Boy Scout across the street. You know, that kind of stuff. Or, or there were puppies. There were a continual series of pictures of puppies, uh, usually Cocker Spaniels. And these cocker spaniels were far more human the way they were painted in the in the uh, pictures. They were far more human than babies or kids. You see, they were very human dogs, and they would be playing ball on the beach to puppies, or they would be pulling the. Th that was another. One. You know what? You know what's what's a typical example of calendar art? How many have you s have seen when you walk through Times Square? This uh, this advertisement, this giant advertisement that appears every year 
for the suntan oil, Ski and Sun. Have you seen that one? Where the dog is pulling the diapers off this little girl, or she's got a bathing suit, just the bottom thing, and she's holding this big red ball, and she's looking very cute. She's got pigtails, and this dog is pulling her pants off, and there's a little, just a slight titillation there, you know, but it's really cute kind. It's the kind that grandmother would, you know, click her dentures over and say, isn't that cute? And that's now, that is pure, unadulterated calendar art. Uh, now, I don't know whether that picture ever appeared on a calendar, but it's exactly the kind of picture that would have really made the scene big on Pass Winsky's Esso Station yearly offering of art. Now, that's, that's calendar art. That's, that's genuine calendar art. Uh, another kind of calendar art, of course, is the serious calendar art. This is this is a kind of art which uh, see that's that's the, that's the humorous calendar. Calendar art did not come only in one flavor; it came in several types. And and there was the cute calendar art, like the little girl with the dog, uh, the Boy Scout leading Granny across the street. That's cute calendar art. Then there's serious calendar art. Now, now an example of serious calendar art is uh, Norman Rockwell's The Four Freedoms. And it shows these four very official-looking faces of people. You've seen that. Uh, that's serious calendar art. That's the kind of calendar art that people say, you know, kind of makes you think. They'd look at that, and it would be above Mattingly's, Mattingly's credit grocery store. See the picture of the four freedoms. Or another kind of serious calendar art would be the kind of calendar art that shows this carved picture of these two hands praying. You know, that kind. And they'd say, you know, you know, it kind of makes you think. I mean, they'd see these two. That's serious calendar art. Now, that's, that's, that's another. Now, there was another type of calendar art, and that's the calendar art that existed for the sheer beauty of aesthetic spirit alone. Now, that's kind of calendar art. Usually, it was the kind of calendar art that showed a pot with flowers in it. Uh, just a pot with flowers. Now, it was never, it was never done in the, in, 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 Van Gogh didn't make that scene because, as my old man would say, I could draw better flowers than them. That's what my old man would say about Van Gogh if he saw the sunflowers. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. Or, or if you can imagine Paul Clay, still life with, uh, with uh, daisies or something like that, I can just, just hear what my, my old man would say. Ah, oh, come on. I, when I was in kindergarten, I could draw better flowers than them. That was a, that, so that, that never made it. So they had to be very realistic. They were almost like photographic. In fact, I, I think most of the paintings were made from a photograph, and there would be a, there would be a, a blue pot, and there would be flowers. Now, what kind of flowers were they? Now, you've got to be very important. It's very important to, to, to tell you that. They were the most unrealistic, lush-looking, uh, unbelievable, fantastic, passionate-looking American beauty roses. Or gigantic ones. They were just exploding all over the place. And underneath it, it would say, Long Stem Beauties. That would be, and that would be the kind of very, very beautiful scene. And people say, isn't that a beautiful calendar? I just love, I just love them roses. You know, I'll never forget the time. And a calendar, of course, would always instill or bring out in people remembrances of beauty's experience past. For example, upon viewing such a calendar, uh, a typical comment of one of my aunts would be, I remember the time, Fred, do you remember the time, man, that Fred sent me six beautiful American beauty roses? You remember that time? The time that uh, the Lithuanian American Club gave Fred the medal? Do you remember that? 
And and they were that type of flower brought out, and that type of calendar I brought out these fantastic. Speaking of calendar eyes, and speaking of the voice of of uh, the nebbish on the street, Vox Popular. That reminds me. This is W O R A M and F M, and and part uh, of course it's in New York, which is the heart of all this this uh, this beauty. And you know, speaking of uh, what is there's more of this stuff rampant here in New York City than there ever was in Hammond, Indiana. But you know, speaking of that kind of uh, beauty, um, I've noticed that today the 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 electronic version of calendar art, the electronic the modern Marshall McLuhan version of calendar art can be found in the commercial. Because after all, the calendar was a commercial. Let's face it, when you got a calendar from Passwinski's Esso Station, he was sending you a commercial. Now, he dressed his commercial up with a picture of uh, Granny being helped across. Oh, there were a lot of them. For example, a typical example of the cute calendar art is a nun. This is the typical. I can remember this one now. An apple cheek nun who looks a little bit like a cross between Debbie Reynolds and Joan of Arc. Uh, there's, a, there's an apple cheeked nun, and she's wearing her habit, of course, and she's, she's, got it, she's got it kind of hoisted up a little bit so you can see just the touch of a well-turned ankle. And she is wearing an umpire's mask. And she is umpiring a game, and you can see that, that it's, it's up to bat is the mother superior. This is a very cute type. And our little, our little nun has just called a low inside ball, strike three on the Mother Superior. And crouching down, you see, is this, is this uh, kind of a cute granny type. She's doing the catching. And she's looking roguishly over her, uh, her left shoulder at the nun who has just called granny out. She's, po- she's po- pointing that the, that the Mother Superior is out. And you can see the Mother Superior's temper coming up. And underneath it, uh, it says, Christian forbearance. You see, that's a typical, now that is a typical, uh, uh, let's put it this way, that is a typical theological calendar. And, and there were many, uh, many kinds of that type. We'll go on and on. Now, <laughs> now these were all commercials. Let's face it. Uh, they didn't just send those to you because they thought you'd like a picture of a nun calling the third strike on the Mother Superior. They didn't at all. They sent this to you so that you would remember old Uncle Frank down at Passwinski's Esso Station when you wanted your oil changed. It was it was a commercial, see. And 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 calendar art was always basically commercial, and that's why it was calendar art. And and I think that the calendar art of our time is the genuine singing commercial. Nobody really, you know, gets calendars. Nobody hangs a calendar in his house anymore. So uh, the the people inst- instead of the Esso company sending 48 million calendars out to the gas stations, now will send a cute commercial, and that cute commercial is heard on all the transistor radios, and it somehow is endearing. It's endearing in a way, in the same way that the that the calendar art commercial was endearing in its way, and so it, that began. That began about the time I, I remember when the change came. You know, people used to hate commercials. Now they like them. Because they're bringing the commercial attitude of the calendar art to the commercial. You know, there used to be a day when the commercial was just a blatant sell. Oh yeah, the guy'd say, "Friends, have you uh, have you envied those friends of yours, those neighbors of yours, who always have beautiful, wonderful gas heat, who never..." Uh, so this never made the scene really. For a while, people used to listen to this, and then they got bugged, and then gradually that was would be the, the George Washington Hill uh, school of commercial. He's the guy. That, that did all the Lucky Strike stuff back in the days when Lucky Strike uh, had uh, 
the hit parade, and their commercials were based purely on the abrasive quality. So round, so firm, so fully packed, so free and easy on the draw. Yes, LSMFT, 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 LSMFT. Ooh, you'd sit out there, you know, you'd blow your stack. But that was the abrasive commercial, and that was at about the end of that school. And then suddenly came along the endearing commercial, in which people stopped hating the commercial and began to love the commercial because it was cute. And about that, about the very beginnings of that, were, oh, uh, how many of you remember Chiquita Banana, ta da ta da ta ta you know, don't you put bananas in the refrigerator, banana ta ta da ta da ta 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 Chiquita Banana was an example of the first kind of commercial that people loved. They, they dug the commercial, you see. So, so uh, the Chiquita Banana, I never saw a Chiquita Banana in my life. Is there such a thing? There really is a Chiquita Banana, huh? Well, that was a commercial. I don't know whether it sold any bananas, but it sure sold a hell of a lot of commercials. And so, so everybody thought, Chiquita Banana. Then, then there was another commercial that came along about that same time that became very endearing. It was Pepsi-Cola hits the spot, 12 full ounces, that's a lot, twice this much for a nickel, too. Uh, Pepsi-Cola is the drink for you. Nickel, 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 nickel. Well, uh, everybody <laughs> liked that one. Now... What they did, they did something very interesting in a way. They, they switched from the, the, uh, the they, they borrowed a book, uh, really a, a page, excuse me. They borrowed a page from the book of the guys that sent out the calendar artists. Uh, most calendar artists really were very good artists. I mean, for their style, they were good. They were, they were illustrators. You paid a lot of money to say, for example, the Norman Rockwell, to send out the Norman Rockwell Four Freedoms. This is a, you know, after all, he's not the, he's not a cockamamie uh, illustrator. He sells a lot. You know, he's a very important illustrator. And so what they did in the commercial world was to do quite a bit the same thing. They went out and got guys who originally were musical writers, guys who wrote for musicals. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you a little story. Maybe I shouldn't even come out with this. I'll tell you a story that a guy who today is represented on Broadway by one of the big hit Broadway musicals is an old friend of mine. And the first time I met this guy, he had graduated from one of America's top musical universities. He had taken, uh, well, I believe he has a doctorate now in, uh, in composition. And he had graduated writing, and his, his thesis, by the way, was a, was a superb sonata, which was and is still being played in concert halls. A uh, really fine performer. And, and yes, he was a pianist, and he was also a superb composer. Well, he came out of, out of, uh, out of the uh, school, and he was well, well trained. He'd, he'd uh, performed in concert halls himself. And the first thing that happened was he, he formed a little company where he provided music for any purpose. That is, anything, anybody who wanted good music, very fine composer in a very modern vein, and anybody who wanted good music could come to him. It's an interesting concept at the time. He didn't set up his idea just as to, to sell uh, commercials. He says, anybody who needs any music for any purpose, uh, come to me. And he even had a, a name of his company that was somewhat like that. I'm not giving him a plug here tonight, but uh, it was a clever name. So you'd see, it, uh, you'd see it listed under music in the yellow book. And under, under the listing, it would say, music provided for any and all purposes. And good, too. So people would go and, 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 and they'd call up and they'd say, we would like you, Uncle Fred is having a birthday and we want a song written for him. <laughs> and he would, he would provide this. And he, he hired three or four songwriters, lyric writers, and he wrote the music. 
and performed on it, conducted it, orchestrated it, and produced this stuff. Well, suddenly, uh, commercial guys started, are you interested in this? Am I boring you? Suddenly, commercial guys started to call him, uh, people who wanted really good music on their commercials. Now, this is, a, this is a really fine musician. So within about the period of a year, his company became the top creator of commercial music for commercials. And, and you've heard thousands of his commercials. I know you have. They're the best you've ever heard. He writes great stuff. Well, uh, well, this uh, he became so much in demand that it became almost impossible for him to compose all the music. And so he went out and he recruited other young composers, guys who who were uh, coming out of Juilliard and places uh, like Yale. These these guys were were really serious hard guys that had studied in Europe. And he went around and he he, he uh, recruited half a dozen others, and they began to be a sort of a commercial firm. Really, it was like a like a like a General Motors of writing great music for commercials, all kinds of things. So they didn't just stop at commercials. They wrote incidental music for industrial movies. Uh, they wrote uh, soundtracks for regular top movies. Uh, they wrote all kinds of wild stuff. Uh, and they, 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 they wrote... One of the things they used to do, too, as a sideline, uh, was is say if you were a top nightclub singer and you wanted really great arrangements uh, of standard songs really great, interesting arrangements. They would provide these arrangements for you, and they wrote the nightclub acts of a lot of uh, top people. So they really had a business. So one day, uh, I, I see him in an office, and I said to him, uh, I said, when are you going to you know, write the, a big thing so your name will be famous? I, you're, you're one of the top, really top composers in the country uh, from, from a lot of standpoints. When are you going to write something yourself? So he says, you know, I've been thinking about that. He says, as a matter of fact, I've always thought that that was what I always wanted to do in the beginning anyway. And he said, I'm thinking about that. And so for about a year, I never heard much about him. And then one day, uh, I got a call from him, and he says, you know, we've been really working on this. And today, that musical uh, has won about 15 top awards, and he is the hottest single thing in the world. And it's a fine musical, by the way. So, so uh, when you hear commercials, don't think in terms of just guys hacks sitting around knocking these things out. That's why I like to parallel the commercial in a way with the calendar art of an earlier day, uh, which it, it provides a peculiar kind of an art form that the people really relate to. Because we're in a materialistic society anyway. Let's face it. In fact, all of 20th century man, no matter where you go in most areas, after all, Russia is probably the most materialist. Their whole, their whole. Uh, Government is based on a materialist concept of uh, of man's place on earth here, so uh, we're not the only ones. So don't think America is a materialist. No, 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 no. China is becoming more materialistic by the instant. In fact, that's their whole big great step forward, great leap forward concept is based on materialism. So, yeah, materialism is sweeping the world. People are beginning to say, you know, they want better things to live with. I'm not one of these people who necessarily say that materialism is, is entirely bad. And so ultimately, uh, the, the materialist things that you can relate to are quite often the things which provide the really basis, the genuine basis for the art that you will vibrate to. I think one of the reasons that pop art is popular is that it quite often relates to very commercial projects, very uh, objects that people live with all their lives. Uh, if Andy Warhol, for example, instead of uh, picking his uh, Campbell soup cans originally when he worked, had, say, picked uh, a liver pate can, uh, a Cell's liver pate, he wouldn't have made it. 
You see, the, why? Well, because there's a certain amount of basic um, involvement, really, with, with Campbell's soup that people feel on a very subliminal, very low, uh, totally true level. So ultimately, these, these things which we call pop or commercial art really are, in a sense, uh, a, a vibration uh, produced, a kind of, uh, a kind of uh, harmonic vibration produced within each one of us about uh, the lives we have lived and the lives we really do live. I think I think that a man quite often will be far more, and I mean I mean he may be even he may be even be a, a very serious man. Now, I'm going to say something probably a lot of people won't like. A very serious man who has spent nine years uh, studying uh, aesthetics and the value of European art quite often subconsciously will be more excited by the sight of a beautiful Chris Craft cabin cruiser, really excited. Uh, in a very different way, or let's say, excited by the sight of a beautifully, uh, a beautifully designed automobile, than he will by the project and the subject that he actually studied and believes in in an intellectual way. Now, <laughs> uh, I remember, I remember, man. Uh, this is this is a uh, where I learned some of these things. These, these things, these observations I, I'm making here, come out of experience. And I remember a man I. I once knew briefly a strange man who gathered together the greatest accumulation of uh, European art in America. He had one of the great collections outside of Philadelphia, which is a still famous collection, uh, a world-renowned collection. But I ran into this guy a couple of times in, in various stores in and around Philadelphia, and I, I got to the point where I could say hello to him because I had a very exotic automobile at the time, and he was drawn to me because of that exotic automobile. Otherwise, he was known for his curmudgeon-like, hermit-like characteristics. And so I began to see that what really vibrated in this guy's soul was not the great art collection which he collected, which was kind of an abstract beauty, but the 1923 magnificent classic Packard which he owned and which he drove around at an insane breakneck speed constantly through red lights and which eventually was the cause of his eventual demise. However, however, this is the thing that he really vibrated to, in spite of the fact he had this magnificent collection of art. Now, uh, where, where, where does this lead us to? Well, it, <laughs> we go into some uh, very, very deep water here as to what, what it, let's say we go into deep water that can be labeled uh, value judgments on degree of excitement. And that's, <laughs> that's a pretty deep water. Now, now, uh, have you noticed that, that today many people will talk? I can, whenever I'm doing a show in any in any place, I can get people talking more about a commercial than I ever can about the content of the show from which the commercial comes. Very few people can remember the shows they see the Mr. Clean commercials on, but they sure as hell remember Mr. Clean. Uh, very, yeah, he's a. I think Mr. Clean will rank with uh, with with some of the great characters created by television. Ultimately, Mr. Clean will have to be in a giant pantheon of, of fictional characters created by the advertising TV world. He will rank along with uh, oh such other uh, such other uh, large looming large people as the White Knight. Uh, sure, I mean, who, who can forget that White Knight? I mean, uh, you see that White Knight galloping over the over the tundra there 
And there's a whole world there in front of you, and you you relate immediately to it. You don't remember the show; you remember the White Knight. And uh, these these things, I, I may sound very facetious about them, but these things really are great symbols of our time. Uh, they are all variations, incidentally, if you noticed, of on one way or another, great variations of the Superman theory, the Superman myth. After all, uh, Mr. Clean is a Superman. He is, he is invincible. You cannot imagine Mr. Clean at the end of the commercial not being able to get the dirt off the floor. You cannot imagine Mr. Clean skulking out in defeat. No, because Mr. Clean is a Superman. The White Knight is a Superman. And all heroes, really, have been Superman. The, 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 the hero that lasts, uh, will last over the ages as an art form, or as let's say as a creation of art, is almost always the Superman. I, th and that's what makes me question w whether many of our anti-heroes, which people are continually writing today, will have any lasting value. Beowulf is still around. And Beowulf was not, I repeat, was not Woody Allen. So, uh, <laughs> and, and I suspect that Beowulf will last a lot longer than Woody Allen. So, on the other hand, you find, you find a, there's another kind of Superman. There's, a, there's the Superman of uh, passion as opposed to the Superman of strength. And that's Captain Ahab. And so Ahab is a classic example of another type of Superman. And uh, he, will, he will eventually, of course, he is in the great pantheon of fictional heroes, very much in the same line uh, as represented by people like... Uh, Beowulf, uh, Richard the Lionhearted, who is, and uh, King Arthur is a greater example. Arthur is part myth and part fact. Nobody quite knows where, but he stands in that in that great pantheon of classic heroes. Uh, a very vaguely troubled one, which makes him even more interesting. And so, ultimately, uh, in a, in his own nutty way, you'll find the people who create in their commercials a Superman will eventually find that that character, if it's well contrived, and if it has certain uh, symbols, we can go into symbolic, certain uh, characters will last and others won't. But have you, did you notice the very close resemblance between, uh, between Mr., if you remember Mr. Clean, between Mr. Clean and the president who was in the White House at that time? That's right. He emerged during Eisenhower's time, and his resemblance to Eisenhower, friends, was not accidental. And, and Eisenhower, of course, his rise to greatness and his rise to becoming a national, if not an international, wildly acclaimed hero, came about because of felicitous circumstances of Eisenhower's appearance in many cases, the, the way he looked, a lot of things about Ike. So uh, Mr. Keen, Mr. Clean rather, was working on a well-established track. Have you noticed that since Ike has no longer really be, uh, he ceased to be a, an important part of the national uh, pantheon of figures, that Mr. Clean has subtly changed. And now Mr. Clean has, has uh, expressions on his face, and even, even his appearance has changed. He doesn't look any more like, uh, like Ike. There's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, all right, don't worry, baby. Uh, but the commercial, the commercial really has become, in, in a very real sense, has become our calendar art of our day. Now, now here's, an, here's a classic example. This commercial, while not having achieved 
let's say, great all-time standard status. You know that some commercials are so effective, they achieve a standard. You know what a standard is in the song world? A standard is a, is a song that is really timeless. Uh, it's played all the time, and no matter what changes come about in the world of popular music, this song will always be a great song. Uh, a classic example of the standard is Stardust. You know, this is a classic example. Another example uh, is Body and Soul. Uh, there are dozens of great classical uh, standards, and that is, has even happened to commercials today. And there is a, a, a hallowed hall, a hallowed pantheon of commercials that, that uh, you'll find on one hand, you'll find nickel, 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 nickel. Uh, use Ajax, boom, boom, da-da-da-da-da-dum, boom, 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 da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Ajax, the <laughs> you all know that song, even though they don't even play it anymore. You don't hear this Ajax song on anymore, but you know it immediately. And when I say, uh, Pepsi-Cola hits the spot, 12 full ounces, that's a lot, twice as much for a nickel, they don't, they haven't played this song in a long, yet it's a standard like Stardust. A Chiquita Panana, ta da ta da da ta ra ta 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 These are all standards. Like, see the USA in your Chevrolet, ra ta ta da ta da ta da There's another standard. And these people who wrote these standards, incidentally, are just as capable of writing a pop standard as they are a commercial standard, which in its way now has become a pop standard. Here's one that is in the second rank of pop standards. Second rank. Miller highlight the bright, clear taste in beer. Miller highlight the champagne of bottled beer. There's only one champagne of bottled beer. This is so much Sparkling, a standard that whenever you hear it, you know exactly what they're singing about. Miller highlight. And even though you don't hear what the guy says, you don't know what they're talking about. From a century-old recipe, Miller High Life has a rich heritage and tradition. A bright, clear a standard, you know. Unequaled, unquestioned, unchanging. Available on tap, in cans, and in familiar crystal clear bottles. Miller High Life is always sparkling, flavorful, distinctive. Enjoy Miller High Life yourself. That's a Miller High Life, the champagne of bottled beer. Yes, Miller High Life, the champagne of bottled beer. You know, I predict uh, we're not yet at that phase. I'm going to make a prediction here. There's been a few abortive attempts. But I'm going to predict that we are going to go through the same wave of nostalgia for the creations of the electronic media. Uh, as we have recently gone through the creations of the comic strip media, that I think in about five or six years, you're going to find people becoming very nostalgic, and I mean in the real sense, over Chiquita Banana. That will represent a simpler, more wonderful Hanslion youth. You know, they will become uh, nostalgic over, and I'll bet there will be games of trivia when people will say, all right, now, okay, Mac, what's this from? Now, listen, it's, oh, come on, everybody knows Chiquita Banana. I pred oh, now, let's get on with a few other commercials. We're going to be okay. Just be calm. One commercial that I've got here, hey, that's not, it's, it's Regal Crown, honey. That's very important. 
Regal Crown is, <laughs> for those of you who, who confuse it, now that, that's a confusing name. I think that'll do something about it. But Regal Crown are these superb candies imported from England. Uh, and they have, they have one of the greatest flavors that I know of. I, this is my personal flavor that I really dig. They're 10 cents. My personal flavor that I really flip over is the, that beautiful cherry. They have a cherry flavor that tastes like, and by the way, I also like sour apple, which is a good one. That, that takes me back to another age. I wonder why they don't bring out a whorehound. I happen to dig this flavor, but not many people do. I think if they brought on a molasses, a bitter molasses one, I think that might sell too. But the next time you step up to your candy counter, say, Regal Crown Sour Grapes, please, and get that rotten look on the face, and they'll know that you're a true believer. Ten cents. And uh, speaking of true believers, and uh, speaking of the British, by the way, sour grapes. I wonder if the British know the meaning that sour grapes has in American slang. Just a curious question. They make this flavor. Speaking of the British, they also make the superb Rover 2000 TC. And if you're looking for an automobile man that is out of sight in more ways than one, I suggest you send us a note here to Rover, and we'll send you pictures and technical specs of one of the greatest automobiles ever built by the poor palsied hand of man. Uh, this is the Rover 2000 TC, a magnificent machine. And since most of us are in love in one way or another with commercial products, you might as well fall in love with something that is worthy of your love. We suggest the Rover TC 2000.